First Timothy chapter four, verse thirteen. You know, it's been a while since I've been able to say this, but I think we should stand and read the word. <laughs> That's our custom. How about we do that? <laughs> Just like in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So 4.13 says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that, that their, your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you. Lord, we uh, come to you once again in prayer. We can never communicate enough with you when it comes to um, truth and understanding how to live it out. We ask that you guide our time now through your Spirit's power. In Christ's name. Well, it's been a few weeks since we last uh, jumped into Timothy, so let me remind you of where we left off. Uh, today's actually a th uh, the third and final part of a sermon series I titled Serving Christ with Excellence, which really began with Paul's instruction to Timothy in verse 6. He told him there that he needed to be reminded of certain qualities needed to be possessed in order to combat the false teachers present in Ephesus. And you'll remember that the church in Ephesus, which at one time under the leadership of Paul, which began with such a, a, a great start and was a beacon of hope within the community in the city and was filled with truth, had now lost its foundation and the gospel had been basically departed from by the church there. Especially after Paul's departure, it didn't take long for this decline to occur. Now, Timothy is stationed in Ephesus to turn the ship around, so to speak, and to bring restoration to what has been broken. So Paul recognized if he was going to do this, there were certain personal qualities he needed to have in order to have the greatest chance of being God's agent and bringing success there. So remember, we learned four things uh, in the previous sermons. One was that you would he uh, a good servant was willing to warn fellow believers about error. We talked about, uh, secondly, that they were to reject any influence of teaching that did not lead to godliness. We also spoke about that um, they were to work hard in pursuing that life of godliness, knowing that their hope was ultimately found in Christ and not in this world. And lastly, uh, they would strive to live as an example of what it was to be a follower of Christ in both speech and conduct within the church community. So those are the four things that uh, Paul had told Timothy to embrace. Today we're going to look at two more qualities of being a good servant or a faithful servant of the Lord and we'll end this mini-series within the letter. And just like I did in the previous uh, sermons, uh, um, when I make the statement about what it is to be a good servant, those will be your lessons and you will see those on your PowerPoint sheets. And again, this passage is important in terms of um, thinking about how to apply it. I mean, Timothy, obviously, uh, this letter is written this part of the letter is written specifically to him. Um, so by extension then, uh, it would seem fitting to pastors and people in spiritual leadership because this is the category in which Timothy falls in. But like we always try to do at Genesis House, I hate just to leave it at uh, applying it to those people and uh, not, not everyone else within the church community. 
And so wherever possible, we do try to make the parallels of where it applies to your life as well. So again, today is going to um, primarily uh, fall under the pastoral leadership guide, but we'll seek to uh, make that personal application wherever we can. So the, f the fifth lesson really, and the, and the fifth thing in becoming a good servant or a faithful servant to the Lord is that uh, they're to devote themselves to the public reading, teaching, and exhortation of Scripture for those they're overseeing. You'll pick that up on your PowerPoint sheet. You'll devote themselves to the public reading, teaching, and exhortation of Scripture for those they are overseeing. Notice Paul in verse 13 mentions this. He says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Now he gives three related sorry, three different but related aspects in terms of how one is to handle the Word of God. The first thing he says is when you're publicly, when you publicly meet, you're to, you're to read it. <laughs> you're actually to read the Word out loud. Now reading, of course, is self-explanatory. Every time the church gathers and the believers are gathered, uh, Scripture is to be opened and it's to be read word for word. Uh, this was nothing new in the early church. This is a, a, a practice adopted from the synagogues. Do you remember Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4? He enters a synagogue in Nazareth on a Sabbath day. And in verse 16 records that when he walks in, it says, as was his custom, he stood up and read. As was the custom, he stood up and read. And he read that day from the prophet Isaiah. And you remember, uh, they, they, initially they, were, they loved him because he says, today this proph prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And after he applied it to their lives, they wanted to kill him. And so, uh, but nonetheless, uh, that was the practice in the early synagogues to read the Bible out loud, word for word, and that was adopted by the early church. Hence why we do the same today. Um, they're also to teach the word. Now, when I looked up what the word teaching meant, uh, the word instruction would often be interchanged or the word doctrine would be interchanged. So teaching then... Thank you. Teaching then goes beyond just reading. It has to do with the unpacking of instruction to believers that's contained within those words. Or the unpacking of the doctrinal truths contained within the scriptures. And then the person is to help that person understand what God originally intended in the original context and how, um, what those truths actually look like. So it had to do with instruction, doctrinal truth, and helping you understand what those things meant. Exhortation was, is a bit different. Exhortation is, is really the application of the scripture. And it really has to do with encouraging somebody or persuading somebody to listen and to take the truths they've just been taught and live them out in daily life. Now there's two great texts I thought of, one in the Old and one in the New Testament of this in practice. And my favorite actually is in, in the New Testament. But let's start in Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 1 to 8. I'll give you the context there. The people have been released uh, from captivity in Babylon. They're now allowed, allowed to return to the land. And uh, Jerusalem, they're in Jerusalem. The temple's been rebuilt and the walls of the city have been complete. And all of Israel's gathered uh, outside of one of the gates of the city to celebrate uh, the completion of this and participate in one of the feasts um, that, that they hadn't done for a while. One of the feasts that God had... Um, appointed in, in the Old Testament law. So if you look at your PowerPoint, here's what it says. They, uh, they're all gathered, and Ezra takes the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel, and read it 
from early morning until midday in the presence of all the men and women. Then he explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place and translated it so they understood the reading. So again, we see the three principles there. The reading, the teaching or the explanation, and the exhortation, helping them understand and, and translating it so they knew how to live it out in their lives. So again, a, a great passage to see this put into practice in the Old Testament. But my favorite one is actually in Acts chapter 13, and I would encourage you to turn there with me. Acts 13, beginning in 13. So Acts 13, 13. Again, remember I mentioned that the early church adopted the practices from the synagogue, and so this is really cool. So Acts 13.13, 13, uh, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. Okay, so we see this right in practice. The reading of the scripture, they ask for an exhortation, he's off to the races. Now what's really cool about this, church, is that from verse 17 all the way to verse 37 is this exhortation and this and this teaching. It's, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, and what he does here is he... He explains how through Israel's history, they started out with the deliverance and uh, slaves in Egypt. Uh, they go through the land of Canaan and take the land. Then they go through the time of judges, the prophets, the kings. And then they talk about the coming of Jesus Christ and how that fits into that picture. And verse 38 is key. This is where, again, the exhortation really comes into play in verse 38. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could be freed though the law of Moses. Oh, sorry, could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And he says, uh, Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So again, he, he walks through the reading of the scripture. He unpacks the doctrinal truths in there, explains it to them, and then gives them an exhortation right at the end. He says, now that you've heard all this, here's what you do with this message. You find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's what you do. Otherwise, there's something that's going to befall you that you don't want to come upon you. So again, a lovely uh, illustration of what Paul is talking about with Timothy in terms of the uh, public reading, teaching, and exhortation. Now that's important because Timothy is to have an effective ministry there if he does that. Now notice it's not enough just for him to read it and put it down. It's not enough just for him to teach it and put it down. He has to do all three things if he's going to turn this church around and lead the way God intended him to. If he's going to lead with faithfulness and be a good servant of the Lord. So that's a pattern of the early church. It's a pattern that Timothy was to continue in. And it's a pattern that we as a Christians are to adopt as well if we're going to be good servants of the Lord. Now why would this be so important? Well, again, remember the context. If we've learned anything from Timothy in these times together, is that even the most healthy of churches 
if they don't stick to these types of, of instructions, are not immune from potential spiritual decline and even disaster. If the Word of God is not front and central in the ministry and taught in these ways and explained in these ways, it's a potential disaster for the church in terms of the spiritual decline. It was the abandoning of God's Word in these ways that led to their failure in the first place. And I don't have to try to convince any of you here that none of us are, are, can't be susceptible to this. Sadly, uh, it's becoming more and more evident as I listen to different people's stories of leaders and churches who are walking away from expounding the Scriptures in these ways. And the result is the Bible is becoming less relevant and watered down and, and the church ends up in a similar situation to what is going on in Ephesus. I remember... Um, Years ago, I had someone, uh, Stuart will know the guy once I tell the story, but this guy was really excited about me coming to his church, and we used to have spiritual conversations at the gym, and so I was a bit leery of going to his because I knew some of the history about it, but I thought, you know what, he's uh, embraced us, I'll embrace him, and, I'll, and um, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. So I go to this uh, special conference they're having in, down, in, in Calgary, and that's one of the pr a prolific church in the, in the city, and uh, I go there, and... Uh, it's a conference and it's about like they had typical, you know, big church, fantastic music, uh, fantastic sound and everything and, and uh, a, a real excitement amongst the people. And then they had a guest speaker from out of town come in to encourage all the, the ministers there and the pastors. And he comes up to the stage and he, he opens his Bible. He reads a one verse, puts it on the podium, walks away, takes the mic and starts giving personal anecdotes for about 25 minutes. That was it. Uh, I was disappointed, but still stuck around for a bit. Uh, then they said, we have another guest speaker to come give an exhortation to the congregation. Comes up, opens the Bible, reads a verse, puts it down the podium, walks away, and gives a 25-minute <laughs> personal anecdotes and uh, stories. And that was it. I was with a friend of mine outside of this other guy who was also in, uh, considering this church in terms of like, you know, to see what they're up to and him and I just looked at each other and said it's time to go and he said yeah I agree and so we got up and left. We were there for about an hour and a half or by this time maybe up to two hours and no word of God preached in this entire service and it was there to encourage pastors and so we were out of there and never returned. Now hopefully that church has been turned around under new leadership but that's not the example that Timothy has been told to do here. But. There's other ways we can walk away from this other than just flat out abandoning the scripture. There's a, uh, this again, we can do it when we, when we um, still read the scripture and often teach it, but we make the airtime, again, more personal antidotes and chicken for the soup and the, or for the soul type stories as the meat of the message, as the meat of the message. And when things happen, when that becomes a source of truth, uh, that's when we also can end up, end up in trouble. I mean, um, John, uh, well, yeah, we're to basically ask the question after we leave a message, or after, after we leave a sermon, whose word did we hear? Was it the pastor's personal thoughts and opinions, or was it actually the word of God? And I learned something from the scriptures, from the original authors, the way it was originally intended. Again, who gets the airtime? Who gets the airtime? It must be the scriptures and what God originally intended. Again, it's not that personal antidotes can't have value. They can, but they can't be the meat of the message. And there's a guy named Dennis Kinlaw. Uh, 
he was one of the most uh, important people I met in my life in terms of like being an example and he was the closest thing to the Apostle Paul I ever met <laughs> in terms of probably like life and application and uh, he I met him in uh, in uh, in Kentucky down near Asbury Seminary and he was about 90 years old when I met him and uh, he, he, he wrote a book called Preaching in the Spirit so there's two ways to preach in the Spirit and out of the Spirit <laughs> and so uh, in the Spirit and he wrote this and then this stuck in my head a long time ago. R really powerful uh, illustration here. Let me just find it for you. Oh boy. Hold on a second. Yeah, okay. So he talks about one of his first times delivering a message in his early 20s. And he talks about how he thought, that's such, that's such an amazing job. And I think even a person came to Christ through it and whatnot. And he was pretty excited about the whole thing. But he said this, After the service, an elderly gentleman waited to talk with me. Tall, stately, and gray-haired with a gray mustache. His name was Otto Reedberg. That name is eternally written in my memory. He looked like King Olaf, stalking down the aisle as he came to greet me. I reached out to shake his hand with him, expecting him to say, thank you, that was a good sermon. But instead of shaking my hand, he firmly took me by the shoulders and gently rocked me back and forth. Staring me straight in the face, he said, son, Dennis Kinla doesn't know enough to help a soul. He's not that bright. <laughs> I'm sure my mouth dropped open in amazement, but he continued, son, this world doesn't need to hear what you think. What it needs to hear is what God thinks. Go home and get down on your knees with your Bible and stay there until you know what God thinks. And the next time you stand up to preach, tell people what God thinks. <laughs> I don't remember the end of that conversation. All I remember is what I, that I walked out of that church with Otto Reedberg's word ricocheting in my mind. The next morning, I rolled out, my, out of my bed onto my knees, flipped my Bible open, and began to read scripture with a new intensity and seriousness. <laughs> Um, at that, as I look back, I do not remember feeling at any point in that conversation that my new friend was being unkind or ungracious. There was an authenticity in his manner that despite the directness, there was an obvious tender concern in what he said. I am grateful for every day of that of seminary training I ever had, but that one conversation has been more valuable than any seminary I received. <laughs> I'm so grateful for the people that mentored me because, uh, like I said, uh, not that I uh, exceed the, or rise to the levels that Paul intended for Timothy, but when I was mentored by Dan Jansen and Lauren Schultz and these men, like, there was no option but to use the Word of God <laughs> in preaching. There was just, and helping people see the truth contained within it. Yeah. All right. Let's return to Timothy now. Remember again that Paul had left him with a very difficult task, right? He he is going to have to turn around this church that was in huge error. He's going to have to confront false teachers and 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 basically expel them from uh, their leadership positions. And remember in verse 12, uh, better turn back there. He was considered uh, young for his age to be in the position that he was. Yes, he was probably in his mid 30s when he was in this position, but according to that cultural context, that was considered young to be in leadership. And so we had a lot of things going, sort of batting against him. Uh, and truthfully, it would have been an assignment that I would have 
found very intimidating to do myself if I was to be in his position. So notice how Paul gets him focused on his ministry and the work he calls him to do. We pick this up in verse 14. He says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of my hands by the presbytery. Now the presbytery, by, just so you know, was the elders. Okay, just not to confuse anyone there. So, before we actually get to the meat of what he's actually telling Timothy to do here and what he's telling them to remember, I would like to just quickly speak about this idea of spiritual gifts, prophecy, and um, laying on of hands, because some of you may be unfamiliar with those practices uh, in the church. So, in terms of spiritual gifts, there's about 20 spiritual gifts listed in the scripture, give or take. And they're designed with one purpose. They're, be, they're to be given to believers by the Lord at his discretion for the building up and strengthening of the church. If you want to get a real good teaching on spiritual gifts, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But they're there to build the body of Christ up. They're not for personal edification, for, for the church's edification. Now one of the gifts listed, and you can find it in Romans chapter 12, is the gift of teaching. This is likely the gift of the gift that Timothy received considering why he was stationed in Ephesus in the first place. Chapter 1 verse 3 says, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Our passage alone in verses 11 through 16, the word teaching comes up at least two or three times. So it would seem to, I would suggest that Timothy's gift, based on his position and the way the letter frames it, is that his gift was in the area of teaching. Now, in terms of how he received this gift, it says that it came through... Um, it was bestowed on him through the prophetic utterance of the laying on of the hands. Now, prophecy obviously is a revelation or a word or a message from God that's given to a particular person or people group for a situation, and it comes through one uh, through a human agent. So instead of God directly talking to someone, like to a, a congregation, um, he uses a person to communicate this message. And it, prophecy comes in two forms: uh, predictive in which it tells of future events. Remember Acts chapter 11, Agabus, the prophet, stands up and says there's a famine coming, and so the people could prepare for the famine coming. Um, also, it can come in, in the form of exhortation. It's urging people to act to a general or specific situation. In Jeremiah 29, uh, God actually tells Israel to build houses in Babylon. So again, it's a, it's a specific instruction for a specific moment. Well, in the context of Timothy, I would suggest this was a specific exhortation. The, the, uh, through a prophet, um, God had told this prophet that he was going to give Timothy this spiritual gift for the ministry he was about to partake in. And finally, the last piece is the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands. Uh, laying on of hands is used in various places in the scripture. Uh, we, you see it in the healing of the ministries of Jesus and the apostles. They would lay hands on people to heal people. Um, uh, we see that, um, yeah, the apostles did that. Jesus did that. It was also used to impart blessing on someone. You'd lay your hands on someone to bless them. Uh, Jesus did that when little children came to him. He would lay hands on them and he'd pray over them. And the disciples would say, why are you doing that? <laughs> and he'd have to rebuke them. But again, blessing was imparted through laying on of hands in terms of a symbolic act. But most importantly, in our context and throughout the scripture, it's used to commission someone for a specific task. The laying on of hands is used to give a visual presentation that someone's being approved for a particular ministry. Remember in Numbers 27, 
In verse 18, Joshua exceeds, succeeds Moses, and Moses lays his hands on him to commission him for the leadership of Israel. And so the laying on of hands uh, here would have been uh, done on Timothy as well for the ministry he was going to partake in. So when you put this all together, here's what was probably going on in verse uh, four, uh, 14. Uh, Tim, uh, Timothy is about to join Paul in his missionary journeys. Uh, Paul and the elders gather around him. They're going to commission him into service. So the Holy Spirit uh, has spoken to one of the prophets, and one with a prophetic gift in the in the group, given him this message that they want to, that he wants to impart a spiritual gift on Timothy. They all gather around him. They put their hands on them, and as they're praying, the gift is received, and he gets this supernatural endowment from God that he normally wouldn't have had. Now, this is important contextually because remember why he would say this in verse 14. It, was, it served as a word of encouragement and a word of caution to Timothy. Why a word of encouragement? Well, again, remember the difficult task he set into place. He's going to go through potential temptations to struggle uh, in terms of like, you know, what he's doing there. And maybe some days aren't as profitable as others. And so he, needs, he wants him to look back, look back in order to move forward, to go forward and to pers persevere. And by remembering that not only the elders of the church who were spiritually mature approved him for ministry, God had specifically spoken to that situation as well. And again, a great moment for him to, to fight the fight and not to give up. At the same time, it's a word of caution because he says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. So there's this potential for him to, to uh, even though he'd been gifted by God, to neglect it, to disregard or ignore this gift. So, even, so he wasn't to take it lightly. Yes, he may have been empowered by the Lord, but it was no use to Timothy if he was willing not to engage in the fight and to basically heed to the instructions in verses 6 through 16 that he'd already been given. He was to put these things into practice if he was going to, to work alongside the Lord in this spiritual gift. So I think that's the context of what's going on in 14 based on everything we put together here. Now, since there's a potential then to neglect this gift, and um, he wants to remind him then of another quality needed in order to serve Christ with excellence. And you can find this on your, your sheet. It's lesson number six. He needs to make a continual effort to consistently guard his doctrine and conduct. So faithful servants or, or good ministers of the Lord need to make a continual effort to consistently guard their conduct and doctrine. And we pick this up in verse 15 and 16. He says, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as, as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now these things that Paul is referring to, you see it occurs in verse 15 and in, in verse 16, the phrase, these things. Well, again, these things are a reference to everything that he's covered in verses 6 forward. But he really summarizes them into two points in verse 16. He calls them uh, your, um, you, uh, your, yourself and your teaching. These things are summarized in two categories, basically your life and your teaching. And he was to make a habit out of the way he conducted himself in these areas. So in other words, he was to pay attention and guard his teaching. He was to pay attention and guard his conduct and his speech. 
this is going to be a constant struggle to be tempted to abandon these things in the situation that he was faced in. He was to persevere. Again, considering the context where the, these strong elders had, who had once held to the gospel had now abandoned it and the church was in trouble was a good example. He wanted to make sure that he didn't fall into the same trap as the opponents. There was a great, uh, great quote from uh, one of my commentaries. He said this, The proclamation of the gospel cannot be separated from the character of the proclaimer. <laughs> the proclamation of the gospel cannot be separated from the character of the proclaimer. That's exactly what he's saying. Pay close attention to these th yourself and to your teaching. He says, if you take pains in these things, the pro progress will be evident to all. And in the context of the word progress, that's in the gospel message. Again, really important for Timothy to live out what, um, in his character, what he was teaching. I was reminded of this this week. I've shared the story at men's group and I shared it with Roy, but I was uh, tempted in this area greatly this week as a cantankerous neighbor down the road uh, <laughs> challenged uh, and kind of maybe put a little bit of a threat to my children. And uh, I had this uh, flesh in me that was rising up and wanted to resort to my 21-year-old brain and 21-year-old brawn in terms of how to resolve the conflict. And uh, this didn't help that my neighbors were riled up too and were go trying to basically act out the way I was thinking when I was 21. And I had this constant battle between me wanting to take justice into my own hands and God's reminder with two scriptures over and over in my head. Number one, Andrew, if you correct a scoffer, you'll get a mitt full back. This man was angry. I know how it was, Proverbs tells me, if I go and talk to him, it's going to end in disaster because he's irate. So talking to an irate man, is not, I'm not going to bring, bring any sense of uh, peace to that situation. Number two, in Romans he says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And all I could think about is, yeah, but Lord, he doesn't know my pastor, and he probably never will, so who cares if I go and take justice? And I thought, yeah, right, he's the, probably the one that's going to end up in the church one day. And uh, anyway, so these are the battles that go on in my head. But what is, what's, the, what's the message? He's saying, he's saying this, um, take pains with these things so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching and persevere. <laughs> persevere. Now, here's why. It comes with a reward, both, both personal and corporate. Look at this in verse 16. For if, as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear. There's a, pers a personal and corporate reward. Now again, it would make total sense, Paul would remind Timothy, to personally persevere based on the context. Before Timothy showed up, the former spiritual leadership who were once committed to followers of Christ had fallen out of relationship with the Lord and abandoned their ministry. Remember in chapter 1, verse 19? Listen to this. Keep the faith and the good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom have handed over to Satan, so they will not taught to blaspheme. Consider chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of their own hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience with a branding iron. Now watch this. He, he says the people who did this are teachers. Watch this. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from the foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. 
So these people are teaching these these doctrines within the church, and the, and especially the young widows, it seems, in in, in Ephesus are falling uh, prey to these men. So again, Timothy is to persevere, stay faithful to the Lord in the speech, conduct, and teaching, so that he will not fall into the same trap and temptation as the false teachers, and by this he will ensure salvation for himself. But there's not only a personal reward, there's a corporate reward. It's for those he ministers to as well. He says, he will ensure salvation for those who hear. What a tremendous verse there. This struck me this week, and it should strike you as well as people who've been, who are also called to share your faith and who are uh, called to be a witness, a salt and light in this world. He's basically saying this, the way you teach people can bring them to salvation, but the way you teach and minister people can also lead them away from the cross. If you can ensure salvation for those who hear you, you can do the opposite. You can also mess it up. And I'm reminded of Ezekiel 33, verse 7 through 9. This is God's message to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, You wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. That wicked person will die for their sin. So again, it's on them. But watch this. I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways and they do, do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you will be saved. Again, to the spiritual leader, if you see sin in the camp, you address it and you warn. That's part of your role. That's part of the, 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 the task you've been given. And by doing so, be so, and you won't be accountable uh, for what the people around you have done. But if you do warn them and they still persist, you've done your job, but you're good with the Lord in those contexts. Hence why in James 3, uh, James 3, 1, it says, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that such, a, that such will, they will incur a stricter judgment. Again, I, these people that rush to want to always be a leader, want to be a leader, be a leader, <laughs> I would uh, make them ponder James 3 before they step into leadership. And Ezekiel 33, it's uh, the Lord's watching. So again, this is a really important lesson for those in spiritual leadership and those who have uh, ministries. In conclusion... I'll just want to reiterate the six points that we've learned from chapter 6 through 16. Or, sorry, verses 6 through 16. This is what he says to Timothy. You will serve Christ with excellence, and he speaks to us as well, if you're A, willing to warn believers about error. You warn follow, will, willing to warn fellow believers about their error. Two, reject influence of teaching that does not lead to godliness. Three, pursue a life of godliness knowing that one's hope is found in Christ. Four, live as an example of, of Christ in speech and conduct within the church community. Five, devote themselves to public reading, teaching, and exhortation of scripture for those they are overseeing. And six, makes a continual effort to consistently guard their conduct and doctrine. When you choose a church, when you leave a church, make sure these are foundational in your decisions. Yes, music's attractive. Yes, kids' programs are attractive. Yes, when family members go to another church, it's attractive. The key central pillar to everything in, as the main decision maker is the people there teaching you, reading you, and exhorting you the Word of God. 
and sticking to the truth. This is what we need as the primary pillar of the church. That's the decision for why you leave. That's the decision for why you come. And that's the main key. There's more to be said, but um, I'll be interesting to have a discussion with you now.